Uh, sorry, Matt. This must be painful for you. Um, no, I just do what I always do when sports come up. <laughs> what do you Start do? Start reading a book. Uh, yeah, I'm writing my third fantasy novel in my head. <laughs> <laughs> that just sums you up. I noticed there was there was no sports or tournaments of any kind in the Crescent Stone book. Will will there be That's a true. will there be a summit Lance Quidditch or something coming? Save it for the show, Clay. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't one of my canned questions. It just occurred to me. Uh, yep. It's it's a paradise. <clears throat> <laughs> What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 203. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Forresteris. I'm Kathy Kong. And I'm Matt Michelotis. This is the Fascinating Podcast from NorvalRogers.com. Today we are interviewing a very special guest. He's a returning guest. He is our very own Matt Michelotis, here to talk about his latest book, The Crescent Stone. You guys... It's going to be fun. I can't wait. I also am excited. <laughs> hey, before we get into all things Michelotis related, we earlier this summer, back when we weren't even the fascinating podcast, if you can remember such a time, we were looking ahead to summer movies at the time, and we had a little bit of a wager Um just trying to pick what movies were going to be the most successful. Now, Kathy, you have since joined us. And I think another great way for folks to get to know you is, is to hear a little bit about your relationship to the cinema, to the visual stories of our time. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I mean, can you give us a 60-second summer movie review? How did you spend your summer, Kathy? I spent my summer waiting for Crazy Rich Asians. That's okay. literally how I spent my entire summer. I was just <laughs> now. I'm curious. Did you read the books? I did. When, like, when when did you become aware of them? Was it like right when the first one came out, or was it like when the movie was announced, or what? I was aware of the books when they came out, but I did not read them right away. One because um, how shall I put it? Uh, the way the books. Well, when Crazy Rich Asians, the first book, first came out, it was, to me, the way it was marketed was kind of beach chick lit. And I actually don't read a whole lot of that unless it pops up on my neighborhood book club reading list. Uh, that's not the kind of book that I gravitate towards. So I picked up uh, all three books via audiobook, actually. Um, I think it was last summer and then reread the first book this spring in anticipation of the movie. I, uh, I haven't read the books. Uh, we went and saw the movie, really enjoyed it. I heard mostly the consensus was that the books were, uh, or the films film was an improvement on the first book. How, how did you, what'd you well, think? Well, I don't know. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, it hit a couple cultural 
nuances that had to be explained to me by friends who are a little closer to that kind of crazy rich Asian scene. And, um, and it just goes more in depth to character development and, and things like that. So did I, mm, they were different and I really liked both of them for different reasons. But if you don't want to go very deep into character development, sure, go see the movie. I, I felt like uh, I felt like that film, because it had such a large cast, would really benefit from having more time for those characters to breathe. And there were tons more people involved too. And and I think the the book kind of fleshes it out a bit. I I, I don't know what it would have been like to walk in cold to see, well, you know what? I should have asked my husband. Well, I went with Jen. Um, I know Jen and I talked about it a lot. She was talking about it for a long time. She, born in Korea, grew up in Jersey and had a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts. And she was really impressed at how uh, how many of the, the nuances and some subtle things were done that I would have never have caught. Um, just, just, a lot, just a lot of little things that she kept bringing up that, that were really interesting. And she so appreciated that from what, what's his name? Kevin Kwan, the author. Yeah. Yes. So aside from Crazy Rich Asians, which was great, did, yes. did you do you see a lot of movies, Kathy? Like, what is your flow for movies in your life? Ah, uh, flow for movies in my life. So actually, much like all of my knowledge around sports, uh, movies are something that my husband loves. And I did not grow up watching a whole lot of movies, nor did I go see them in the theater. And uh, that's my husband's thing. He loves like date night. He wants to go see a movie in the theater. So we see a lot of movies now. In fact, we probably own as many books as we do movies in one format or another in the home. So our poor children, when we die, it's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, we still have like movies on um, uh, Laserdisc. Yes. Okay. Nice. So, yeah. Wait, do you still have a Laserdisc player? Wow. Yes. That's fantastic. You need to go to Half Price Books and check out their collection of Laserdiscs. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's... That is what love is. You learn to speak the other person's <laughs> language, right? Their love language. And for him, it's like new tech and he loves movies. So I remember buying a laser disc player. So anyway, um, there are a lot of movies that are theater, go see in the theater movies for us and for me. And then there are, there are different movies for me that are like, yeah, you go ahead and I'll save I don't even remember how much a movie costs anymore because we do it on an app. Um, and then it's like, it's, it feels like it's free on the app. Yes, it does. It really does. <laughs> I know, it does. <laughs> see any numbers. You're just picking seats and then you show up. So, yeah. so there are a lot of movies where I'm like, you know what? I don't need to see this in the theater. Let's save whatever like funny money we have. You go see the movie. And our boys, our kids love to see movies too. So we, yeah, we're a big movie family. But Crazy Rich Asians definitely was one where we had to drag the 17-year-old. He wasn't, <laughs> he was like, but it's a rom-com. 
And I'm like, yes, but it's a rom-com with leads who look like you. So you have to <laughs> see this with uh-huh. me. What, what, how, did that, how did that come out Like on the other side of the film? Did he come out saying like, oh, that was great? Or like, I guess that wasn't so bad? Or like, that was terrible? He was like, yeah, that wasn't bad. He was like, yeah, it was a good movie. Was he like secretly drying tears where you couldn't see him? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I think he was just more annoyed that he had to see a romantic. <laughs> 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 well, it's interesting yeah. that you bring that one up, which certainly did very well at the box office. I mean, it it was a record-breaking film. Um, we we had uh, earlier this summer we had talked about what films we were most anticipating, and one of Matt's actually was Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, And then with an indeterminate stakes, we then picked three films that we thought would be the highest grossing films. And I've done the math and uh, I have I have the results of who did the best and who did the worst. And by default, I want to say that this betting made me nervous all summer. Like I was watching every week how each movie was doing and going like, oh, my gosh. I, I hope I win, but I don't even remember. I was like, did we bet anything? I think we just kind of vaguely said something bad will happen to the loser. I think we said loser has to be featured on an episode of the fascinating podcast. Um, <laughs> shoot, I lost. <laughs> well, okay. So just, just to remind folks. I was going to suggest before I had any, any indication who the loser was that the <laughs> loser would have to watch something that the two winners picked and give a report back. That that is that is um, I would probably say Mamma Mia Here We Go Again would be the, the I, one. I just want to say I'm not going to watch Wolf Shark the Return. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> oh no, I was thinking the Nick Cage Left Behind movie. <laughs> oh nice. Well here, okay. So the top grossing yeah. movie of the year is Black Panther, and that was already that had already come and gone by the time we made our picks. And number two was Avengers Infinity War, which we took off the table since we all knew it was going to be like massive and it was coming out at that time. So, Matt, you picked uh, Solo, The Star Wars Story, Jurassic World, Ah. and Ant-Man and the Wasp. And we were strictly going on domestic box office. Right. And um, Solo was the eighth highest grossing film of the year. Jurassic World was the But a disappointing, a disappointing outing for a Star Wars film. Yeah. As far as... And it didn't do much better uh, internationally. And Ant-Man and the Wasp was seventh. So, Matt, your films came in at a gross of $844 million domestic. Ah, man, I didn't even break a billion. I I went with Deadpool 2, Solo, and Jurassic World. Um, Deadpool 2 actually was the fifth highest grossing film of the year. Uh, It made double internationally what it made domestic, but I'm only taking the domestic. So my films totaled up. hmm? What did you say Jurassic World did? Where did it fall? So here, here's the run. After Avengers at number two, it goes Incredibles 2. And then the oh, fourth no. highest was Jurassic World. And then Deadpool 2, followed by Mission Impossible, Ant-Man, and Solo. Those are the top eight. We okay. all picked... Solo. Um, we all picked, like, the right area. My films equated to $947 million. So I'm sorry, Matt, but oh. you're now in second place. <laughs> I'm now in last, because JR picked Incredibles 2. JR did pick Incredibles 2, which made... Uh, 606 million, not bad. And he also picked Solo and he picked Mission Impossible. Mission mm-hmm. Impossible only made 218 million domestic, but Incredibles 2 was so good that JR cracked a billion 
at 1.037 and jr actually won even though say that again say it twice for the people in the bag will not (laughs) but really you didn't win anything that's right that's true that's right kathy he won as much as the Chicago Cubs did this year. Um, oh. I just I think anyone who has been listening for a while would know that the only thing I need to win is uh, beating Clay and Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I d- does that feel like a change for you, or does that just feel like the normal experience? I was very nervous this summer as well, Matt. I did not think I was going to win. Jr. I just want you to acknowledge that. I didn't have to do that math. And when I did that math, I didn't have to tell you. Um, I've been sitting on that for three weeks, sad in my heart because oh, wow. you won. And Kathy, I, appreciate it. I hope that Peter is not going to turn off the podcast now that I made a Cubs joke. No, he'll forgive you because he loves movies. And ultimately, he loves, he loves me more than the Cubs. Yes. And Peter, I just want to say I respect your commitment to the superior play quality of Laserdisc <laughs> <laughs> over DVD. It was a it was a bad mistake that we made switching over to DVD. Well, you know, there's Blu-ray now. Yeah, there's Blu-ray. That's true. Well, we'll that, always have Blu-ray. That was fun. And Matt, uh, I do think it's time for you to give us a m- movie report on Left Behind starring Nicolas Cage. Deal. <laughs> I have I have volunteered this before, and I will do it again. I am happy to go through the effort of setting up a synchronized watch party where we record a commentary track and release it to our listeners. Oh my goodness! With Kathy now, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it would be a lot of work and a lot of suffering on our parts. But Let's I would, if there are three humans on the planet that I would be able to endure that movie with. And if I was doing it for a good cause, like the joy of our listeners, I would do it. Well, I guess if we hear from some listeners and they say that, yeah, we should be creating a uh, riff track for movies such as Left Behind, we'll, we'll do what the people want. And, I, and last time I checked, which has not been recently, that movie is on Netflix. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So we don't even – there's no – other than the cost to our souls – there's no additional cost incurred. I'm looking forward to the theological implications of Nick Cage's uh, <laughs> gross. Nick Cage's left behind, especially in light of his performance in Ghost Rider. I feel like those two <laughs> may somehow interact with one another. God took them all. Now it's just <laughs> us. It sounded like a young Harry <laughs> Carey. <laughs> Oh, this is the best show on the internet. So, Kathy, uh, you know, eventually you're going to have to do some scary things like introduce guests and and all that. So, you know, I figure since today's guest is Matt, uh, without any preparation or bio, why don't you just why don't you just go ahead and introduce today's guest? Oh wow! <laughs> mm, mm. You can just make stuff up. Show notes earlier today. No, nope, there's no show notes on this. I know. That's why I'm like, wait. But- just just base it on stereotypes about Greek people. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Bicolatis is an author who probably Opa. likes feta. Feta cheese. Welcome to the show, Matt Michelotis. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, you know, so Matt, once upon a time, we used to ask guests for their geek credentials. But we realized yes. that seemed a little gatekeepy. 
And so uh, we've been now asking our guests, uh, what, what, are you, what have you been fascinated by lately? Just help us get to know you a little bit. Okay. So I mentioned a book I was reading last week, which is The World of Storytelling, which is this book that takes all of kind of our scholarly research into story and puts it in one place, one book. And it is ridiculous. I feel like I'm learning so much uh, by reading it. So, for instance, one of the ways they study the origins of story is looking at the earliest examples of stories in which someone tells a story. Uh, so, so, for instance, it could be uh, the story of the prophet Nathan coming to David, right? Uh, that's in the Bible. So we're looking at these really old stories about people telling stories. And, and what, they're, what they discovered is that story as entertainment is a relatively recent uh, thing in, in the life of story uh, as pure entertainment. Almost always, er, the earliest stories were almost always religious or informative, uh, that they were designed to teach something. So, you know, a lot of people lean toward that still today in storytelling. Uh, and it comes, it's part of what story was designed to do, which I think is so fascinating. And then as you, as you go through and you start getting into stories after literacy, so after writing is invented, um, we start seeing that it transforms what story is. And eventually, uh, a lot of studies now show that literacy actually changes the way the human mind works, which is just fascinating. So anyway, that's something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and pretty fascinated by right now. It's really apropos for uh, the new book that we're talking about today as well. Yes. Since it is a story that also uh, is designed to teach. Yes, for sure. For sure. Uh, so I'm curious. So we're going to be talking about your new fantasy novel. I am really curious if uh, this is a question for all the listeners. I assume, Matt, you enjoy fantasy. But what about I do. Um, Clay, Kathy, do you all enjoy reading fantasy novels? Do you read fantasy novels? Do you care about fantasy as a genre? Yes. <laughs> yes, I read it. Um, I, I definitely read more of it as a child. And um, have been reintroduced to it really through book clubs, and um, and now in 2018, spend a lot of time wondering and dreaming about fantasy worlds because. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so wait, Kathy. This is the second time in this show you've mentioned book clubs plural. How many book clubs are you in? Can you walk us through that? I'm only I'm only in two. At one time, I was in three. Yes. So I'm in one in Just my two? neighborhood. Just two. I'm, I'm in one in my neighborhood, which I started many, many years ago to make friends. I didn't have any friends. I didn't know how to make friends. It's not something they teach you how to make friends as an adult. And so I figured, oh, I will try to find some women in my neighborhood who would like to read books and talk about them. So hmm. I started a book club. And then I'm in another book club of women from all over. They're mostly in the city. So I drive in and we've only been reading uh, women of color. Any particular genre or do you do like nonfiction, fiction? All, all over the place? genres. Nice. Okay. But back to Matt <laughs> or back to <laughs> fantasy. Back to fantasy. Yeah. I'm guessing I'm the person who's, 
both read the least on this podcast and read the least fantasy. And I mean, that's not to say I don't read a lot in my adult life. I just, you guys all had, you know, 18 year head starts on me. Those off to see the wizard books have a lot of fantasy elements in them though. They do. I know you love those. Well, I really enjoyed the first one. Um, you know, that was something I just stumbled across. I'm trying to think, does Watership Down class uh, categorize as fantasy? Oh, I I think so. It's got prophecy and supernatural interactions and, I mean, talking rabbits. Yeah, I thought of that. Every time I open Crescent Stone and look at the map that is the map of the sunlit lands, I think of... that was That was my first experience where I remember, like, getting a book and it had... You know, it had that glossary, like right in the front yeah. of the book to teach you all the rabbit yeah. language. It had the map. And then I was just so riveted. I mean, the opening scene of Watership Down, it never leaves you. So that's my first fantasy novel, even though it clearly has never been the genre that has called to me the most. Um, I very much move towards reality more, both in nonfiction and fiction. Uh, I, I love fantasy. I My cousins and I on my mom's side of my family would always do Christmas gift exchanges. And I had a one year that my older cousin, he's, he's the oldest cousin on that side, um, gave me the Terry Brooks Shannara trilogy, which I think now there are approximately 17,000 Shannara books, but back then it was <laughs> just those three. Um, and, and I was a, a seventh grader and the first book was like over 700 pages long. So it was, probably more than twice as thick as any book I had read up to that point, even Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. <laughs> and um, I just realized that joke was on the pre-show, so none of our listeners are going to get it. Apologies, listeners. Um, but I I decided I would try it, and I, I read the whole thing in like less than a week, uh, which for a 13-year-old kid, I was I was like, whoa, I can't believe I did that. But I just – I it was the – one of the first books that I remember was long enough that I couldn't put it down and it took me multiple days to get through, you know? Um, and, and so that I read the whole trilogy, I read it over and over again. And I, I didn't really know that there was a whole genre of these. I thought that these were like, I don't know why, but I just, I never, it never occurred to me to look for other fantasy books. And then when I was in high school, uh, I was in uh, a class with, with a guy who, said, oh, you like those books, try these books, and gave me the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. And those became my all-time favorite fantasy books. I, I love that series. I've really enjoyed it a lot. So, uh, Matt, what about you? I mean, obviously you wrote a fantasy novel, so I assume you have some affinity for the genre. Yeah, I I came in pretty traditional, like for people who uh, think of, like people in the science fiction and fantasy community. My dad was really deeply into science fiction and fantasy from when he was young. So we had just books around the house, um, but I started in with J.R.R. Tolkien and then went from there to C.S. Lewis and from there to whatever I could find with a picture of a dragon or a unicorn or a knight or something <laughs> on the cover and really just read whatever crossed my path. So I've read a lot of fantasy, um, some really, really good ones and a decent amount of garbage. Uh, and I, I don't know. I still enjoyed them. <laughs> And and I still read them. Yeah, I still enjoy reading in that genre. So as the um, relative novice here, what makes good fantasy, Matt? Well, it's a complicated question. Really, the genre itself 
has its roots, right, in some of our earliest oral traditions. So things like uh, Beowulf or uh, Journey into the West um, or, uh, I mean, some people like non-Christians would say a lot of Christian literature is fantasy, right? Where it's this interaction with human beings, usually human beings in, in the fantastic and the supernatural. And what does that reveal about the human experience? Um, I think the best fantasy work, uh, goes after just that. What does it mean to be human? And what do we learn about ourselves uh, in the interaction of humans with something other than humans, something supernatural, something different? Uh, so that's the stuff I love best in fantasy. I think a lot of people would say the world building is pretty um, important. Like you want to be transported, really. Actually, Kathy said something really close to that earlier. You want to be transported somewhere else, right? Somewhere where there's different problems. And a lot of times the problems are a little more cut and dried. The, the evil guys and the good guys and the good guys hopefully are going to win. And much of fantasy literature up until semi-recently, the good guys always won. Uh, so yeah, stuff like that. And it was, it was like relatively, um, relatively binary, right? Like there wasn't a lot of nuance. The, the good guys were like almost like idealized heroes and the bad guys were almost caricatured, right? Yeah. The, I mean, that's often true. And part of what happened is, and now we're getting into Clay's geeky history stuff, but as the, <laughs> as the concept of a nation state came into being, uh, what yes. started to happen mm -hmm. is that different national groups would adopt fantasy epics and turn them into national nationalist propaganda. And uh, when you're so war literature, basically, and in war literature, the bad guy is always caricature, a caricature uh, that you're trying to destroy. Right. Because they're evil. The core of them is evil. Um, so, yeah, that, that became a really common trait of fantasy novels as, as we moved into the modern age as well. So you're talking even something like Lord of the Rings, right? For sure. I mean, Lord of the Rings absolutely has its uh, roots in North n North. <laughs> I've got a list now. Myth. It's myth <laughs> um, in uh, Norse mythology, uh, almost almost exclusively Norse mythology. He and C.S. Lewis were really deeply into it. And, uh, you know, especially when you look at the history of like, uh, the ring saga and things like this, you see the Germanic influence coming in, uh, where it became heavily, heavily nationalistic. And so some of that was imported, I don't think on purpose, but because of the genre he was writing in that he's writing in this kind of epic fantasy space that had become nationalistic, uh, I think he adopted a lot of that uh, as, as part of the genre, not because he was necessarily taking on a nationalist position. Obviously, Tolkien was not pro-German, for instance. Um, but yeah, some aspects of that came in in his work. Uh, so I'm curious then, you are a lover of fantasy literature. You are a lover of storytelling. You're a writer and, and you decide not for the first time. I mean, uh, folks who have followed, you know, you have some, uh, you have a, a middle grade fantasy universe that you created with the sort of six worlds. Uh, but you decide you want to tell a new story in a new fantasy universe uh, today in, in the current geopolitical landscape and the current fantasy landscape. Can you talk a little bit about where that idea came from and sort of sort of how you located yourself? Because I know part of the proposal process is like, why me? Why this book? Why right now? 
right? So can, could you kind of touch on those, like where you found that and decided to that this was the book you wanted to write next? And when did the idea come? Yeah. Uh, so, so I've been working with college students for 20 years, right? And this question of how do we interact with each other as people from other ethnicities, cultures, genders, uh, all, all these differences we have, it's incredibly difficult to navigate. And people from some cultures uh, or ethnicities find it even more challenging because they don't feel like they have a place where they can explore and experiment without either harming someone or harming themselves. What I mean is, uh, let's say someone who's grown up in the same culture their whole life uh, within the United States, but like a subculture. And they're like, oh, I want to go make friends with someone from another ethnicity to enter into that person's world without making mistakes. is basically impossible. Uh, and that fear of making those mistakes and being thought of as being racist or being revealed as racist really is difficult for people. So my publisher, actually, uh, uh, my friend Jesse Dugan had just become an acquisitions editor, and I'd known her for several years. And I sent her a note and said, hey, I would love to work with you sometime. And she connected me to Linda Howard, who eventually acquired the book, who uh, had started the – she wanted to start a young adult line at my publisher, Tyndale. And I said, what would be your like your dream book? And she said, uh, I would love a fantasy novel for young adults that deals with issues of racism, ethnicity, and power, uh, like privilege, basically. And I was like, you just described – like my perfect book. I was so excited. And so that's when I, uh, I kind of sat down and said, okay, how do we, uh, part of what we use story for, right. Is to experiment in these different places and to learn things with sometimes without actually having to go experience for ourselves. So part of what I was asking myself was how do I create a, a tool? Like how do I create a story that's actually healing, meaning that it, it fixes a broken place in us that reveals something and shows us a way forward. And th so that was the genesis was like, what, what does this world need to be? What do the pieces need to be to tell the story we want to tell? And who are, who are going to be the people inhabiting that world? And that that's where it started actually it was sort of with an assignment. That's interesting. So from that assignment and that being right in your wheelhouse, um, th there is, there is so much in this book that, the characterization is great. The plotting is super fun. And yeah, the magic and the world building, it's all there. And I've, I've loved all of your books. But I will say, as I read this, it did not take long before I was just kind of like, this is really good. Like it, it feels, I don't know, it felt like bigger. It is definitely like an epic. But there was just something... I don't know, like next level to the to the lyricism of the writing and and to just the way the story was coming into focus from the outset. Thanks, Clay. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. So, what came first? I mean, is it our he our heroine? Is it the world? Is it the idea that there's got to be a passage, you know, for um, you know, for wounded people into the, another world of some kind, or like where did you start? Um. You know, I, I think there were two pieces that came into place almost simultaneously. One was Madeline, who's one of the main characters. 
and the second was the magic system for the world. Um, with Madeline, I knew that I wanted one of the main characters to be a person with a significant amount of privilege, and that's Madeline, right? She's she's Anglo. She's well off. Like she's rich. She has more money than any of the four of us. Uh, her, her family is well off. They have servants in the home. Well, you know, people they've hired. Um, they, she's educated. She's smart. She's beautiful. She's popular, all these things. And then to complicate things, right. To make it a more, um, compelling story. Uh, we also need her to be someone where we see the inter- intersectionality, right? That she may be super, super privileged, but also she has some places that she's not privileged. Uh, and for her, that's her health. So she has this uh, a fatal condition, if, if not treated correctly, called interstitial lung disease. That It's a slow-moving uh, disease that basically scars the lungs and uh, eventually removes all lung functioning. And she's young, uh, but but she's dying. So that piece was one piece uh, that she was going to be sort of our point of view character. And then the other piece was magic that a lot of times magic is seen as a hack in the universe, right? It's a way that you can, with very little work, get a large return. Uh, and that's part of the fantastic part of it. That's part of what we love about it, like that you can make very little sacrifice and have a great deal of power. Um but I, I thought it would be interesting to build a magic system that actually had a cost to it. And it, there are plenty of novels that that is true in. Uh, but I wanted to make it almost a one-to-one cost. So the, the magic in the Sunlit Lands, the way it works, is let's say I want to have a beautiful singing voice that I can borrow that through magic from someone else with their permission who already has done the work to create a beautiful, skilled singing voice in their life. I can take that from them, but they won't have it anymore while I'm using it. Uh, so, so there's it, it's a um, it's a transference, right, of power mm-hmm. uh, that we're allowed to do with within the magic of the sunlit lands. So the, those two things kind of came into place at the same time with this idea of like we can uh, use both of these to explore really interesting, fun situations that also don't have simple answers was part of part of what I want. I didn't want to like, let me tell you everything that you should know about racism. And here's the obvious solution. Like it's, it's more complicated than that in real life. And I wanted it to be more complicated than that in the book as well. Well, I'm to be completely honest. I have not quite finished. I'm like on 300 something. Well, we're not going to, we're not going to spoil anyway, right? Well, you know, but it, I'm very invested at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's also part of it. As you have developed the characters, I do want to say, Matt, I appreciate it. I feel like there's something very true about uh, Madeline and then even Jason, which yes. surprised me because usually yeah. I don't, um, it, especially in fantasy too. It's, it's one of those genres where uh, I'm, I'm, more drawn to the the bigger story and less a particular set of characters. Um, but for both Madeline and Jason, mm-hmm. I was like, Ooh, I'm, I'm a little invested. And uh, the characters, particularly Jason, I can relate to as having 
as being the mother of two boys, I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Jason is largely people's favorite character. So many people have told me Jason's by far their favorite. He's awesome. Well, and every time something happens, I'm like, you know, has Matt been in our home? This, <laughs> this, is, this is one of my children. This, <laughs> this is one That's of my funny. Children. This is one of my boys, so maybe I'll have him read this book after he reads mine. So that'll never happen. Uh, <laughs> so as you're as you're developing characters and then you're building magic and the system, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the process of making sure you integrate both? Because character building is one thing. Uh, but in this world of fantasy, I think you have it has to be just believable enough. So can you tell us a little bit about the broader story? Where does this world come from? And what were you hoping for in the end? Yeah. Um so that that's exactly right, Kathy. A lot of a lot of times in fantasy novels, it is it, they tend to be very plot driven, right? Like uh, we have to get the magic ring, or we have to destroy the magic ring. We have to get someone out of prison, or we have to get someone in prison. We have to kill the bad guy. Uh, you, you know all these. It, it's there's a quest. Uh, oftentimes, oftentimes, uh, and I felt like in this book. That is true. That That's actually really true. That's a big part of the story. But at the same time, there is something um, almost dishonest about that. Like most of us don't live our life with one overwhelming thing that if we can just accomplish this, everything's going to be all right in our lives and the world around us. Um, and that a lot of times more important than the quest or as important uh, as the quest is what's happening for us as human beings. And that was something I really wanted to explore. Um, and the other piece that you probably picked up on is I'm so sick of books about people who are involved together, but kind of hate each other and are just mean to each other constantly. And I wanted people who actually were friends and liked each other. And uh, that the conflict wouldn't come from, uh, oh, I dislike this person I'm on the quest with. Um, so what I was hoping for, I think, is that in the midst of this, that someone would enjoy themselves, that they would just have fun, that they would laugh, that, that they would uh, enjoy the book. But also that there would be moments, and, and this is what I feel like my favorite literature does, that there would be moments where you would be surprised along with the characters and that you would go, wow, I had all the pieces to know that. Why didn't I? What does that say about myself? That it would rev that you would be on the journey, basically. That there would be moments that you would experience along with the characters some piece of growth or an encouragement or a new way of seeing the world. And, uh, you know, that's a lot easier when I'm building the world instead of trying to show you in the real world. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a couple little cheats and tricks I use to do that. But, uh, I, the thing that pleases me most is when someone calls me or sends me a note and says, when you revealed this piece, I was blown away. And then I thought, why didn't I see that? Like I should have seen that before. 
Uh, so obviously this book has just come out, but uh, people who follow you on Facebook know that you have already gotten your edits or getting your edits back real soon for book two. Uh, what can we expect? Uh, what can we expect from another book? Uh, well, it sounds like book two, actually, they're going to move up the schedule a little bit, possibly. So it may be even early summer uh, of 2019. Uh, it's completely written. We're starting editorial the day this episode drops uh, and trying to get edits done by mid-November uh, so that we can get the book out faster. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's what Could it says in the back, that, uh, that it's it's coming. So you've already got chapter one as a sneak peek of the next book um man you've got this whole appendix of all of these stories that you've written about this world like poems and songs and legends that would have come from all of the different corners of the sunlit lands i just i keep flipping through it it's so fun and so nuanced i mean i just i just picture you like (laughs) driving home from church on a Sunday afternoon and like, Oh, you just thought of a new, um, you know, (laughs) poem of some mystical group that you created or something. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed doing that actually. Like I love thinking what would be the mythology and the stories and the poems and even what would be the style of poem and uh, multiple people in the sunlit lands are actually illiterate, uh, uh, like entire groups, because why learn to read when you can have magic birds that talk, deliver messages, you know, stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of oral literature and uh, long form epic poetry that rhymes and like all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I just thought it was fun to put it in the back. And then also each chapter has an epigraph from either that or these fake novels I invented um, that have some connection to the story. And I think it's just fun. You know, when we put a bunch of people in the same place from different backgrounds and different ethnicities that, um, you know, they're, they're not everyone heard little red riding hood growing up. You know what I mean? Um, and it's fun to put all those stories in there because it reveals something about the different characters and the worlds they inhabit and why their different points of view might be making conflict between them. Well, it is so fun, and uh, yeah, I need the next one. I've got some theories working. I, I have some thoughts on Mrs. Raymond and a couple other characters. I I think things are coming, but oh man, I got to tell you too, as I finished, Matt, it was one of those weird moments where I was totally invested too, Kathy, and as I neared the climax, I actually, instead of going to suspending disbelief, I started seeing you more and more. And the more I saw my friend Matt as I reached the end of the book, I was getting a little misty, a little choked up. I don't typically, um, Kathy, I'm not, I don't, I don't watch This Is Us and I don't ever like cry when I read books very much. Really? I I, I love it when a book gets me that much. And it's been like five years since I read Hey Nostradamus by Douglas Copeland, which is probably the last book to do it. But um, yeah, I was like really feeling it. So it's a, it's a great payoff. It's a really great book. And just proud of you, buddy. Thanks, Clay. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. You know, can I ask real quick? Because you, I've appreciated reading and imagining how this all, um, where it's going and mm-hmm. what's coming next. And that's uh, the power of story and the power of history, right? So the epigraphs are important because, like you said, it kind of puts an puts a deeper 
uh, investment of knowledge into the hands of the reader. Um, what, so as we come out of the book, what do you think is the loss for some of your readers who may not have that kind of understanding about their own story? Hmm. The, the, their own their personal, personal story? story? Yeah. Or, or is there a loss? Is there, are you trying to nudge people into digging a little deeper? Because I, I think that that is what is so overwhelming for me as one who's not read all of, say, Tolkien, but has, you know, I know of the language and just this, um, the roots of the world he created. And, yeah. you know, as you were talking about wanting readers to think a little more and that sense of, you know, we don't know how to get along. Why is part of knowing history the key to helping us? Or is that just going to push us further away? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, Man, Kathy, I think that's one of the key complexities of how we're going to learn to live together, right? Is this question of what... Okay, so the first book, a lot of the theme is about privilege and power and being aware of those things, that we all have some sort of privilege and power. What does that mean? Does that mean it's bad? Does that mean it's evil? Does that mean it has to be set aside or destroyed? Or like, what do we do with that? Um, the second book, what we're going to start walking into is when we deal with the fact of injustice in our personal past or our corporate past, how do we deal with that? Like forgiveness is not sufficient in the absence of justice. Uh, justice without forgiveness seems uh, harsh and creates injustice. So what, how do we, how do we take this enormously complex thing and, and find a way forward? And the reality is there's not a simple answer to any of these things. So I would hope that part of what these books take us toward, I hope, I really hope is a recognition of the beauty of other people's stories and of the reality that, um, compassion and knowing one another has to be part of the way forward. And that, and that the traditional fantasy novel, that the answer is the myth of redemptive violence, right? That somehow we're going to fight our way to a solution. And, and that in my opinion, that that reveals a lack of imagination on our part and that the redemptive violence is not going to move us uh, to a place of true community. Uh, and there has to be a better way forward. And how do we find that with one another, which is a lot of what these books are about. Yeah. Thanks. That's good. Uh, you know, Matt, I think, uh, what you said there at the end about a lack of imagination is, is exactly why folks I, I think should read this book and why, why I've been recommending it. Uh, I, I think my favorite kind of story is the one where the, you find people, you find characters that you have come to care about over the course of the book in impossible situations. And you wonder, how, how could there be any hope? And then an author is uh, imaginative enough to provide a solution that feels, as you mentioned earlier, both inevitable and entirely surprising. 
And I think that I think that's exactly what you do in the, in this first book. So I, I would be surprised if anyone who has who is listening to this podcast didn't really enjoy uh, the entire journey that that this book takes you on. And that's what I think. It's funny because when we start talking about all the underlying, like here's what was going on, and kind of the gears of the book, it sounds super heavy. And like intense and possibly intellectual, but it's actually none of those things. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> like feel like you it. read it. It's like a really light-hearted adventure that is funny and full of ridiculous things. Like there's a there's a unicorn named Delightful Glitter Lady. <laughs> yes. there's, you know, there's there's all these just like really well, funny hey, so, moments and like, so like loving and kind and yeah. There's so I tell mean, us it's, tell us yeah. what Jason's request is, unless you consider that a spoiler. Oh, yeah, I think okay, that's okay. a good example that that's fairly okay. early in the book. Yeah. So so the driving piece of the plot is that Madeline, who's dying, right? She can't breathe. That this essentially like an elf, right? Comes from the equivalent of Narnia. And he says, come with us and fight against the bad guys for a year. And we will heal your disease using magic. And so, of course, that's a no-brainer. She's well, going to say yes. It's uh, They get whatever they want, right? Their heart's desire. Well, yeah, right. And her heart desire, obviously. And then Jason, her friend from school, <laughs> says, you can't go by yourself. I'm going with you. And the guy's like, well, I... I have to give you your heart's desire then. And he goes, okay, I want a unicorn. He's like, well, those, I can't give you a unicorn. He's like, fine. I want, um, a chocolate pudding a day for the rest of my life. <laughs> and so that's the, and I want to ride a unicorn at least. So that's the deal he makes. He goes, uh, in exchange for going with Madeline and, be, you know, actually being in service to Madeline, he gets a chocolate pudding a day for the rest of his life. Um, and, uh, yeah. That, that pays off in various ways, but that's kind of Jason's <laughs> character is he's like intensely loyal. He's definitely an off the cuff guy. And for a variety of reasons, he only tells the truth and he constantly volunteers it, which creates more problems all the time, uh, but is in very entertaining in its way too. So well, yeah, good. chocolate pudding every day. So. <laughs> and there's so many other characters we didn't even mention. So you just got to read it. You've got to, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's David and what is it? Kakua and Ruth and Kakua. Kakua, yeah. man. I mean, there's so many places to explore. So Matt Michelotis, where can people find you online? Yes, you can find me online at uh, NorvalRogers.com, of course. And you can also go to the sunletlands.com, which is the website for this book. And there's a variety of things. You can sign up for the newsletter there and get a free map and uh, a couple other things. And, uh, yeah, so you can find me there. And, of course, if you can spell my last name, M-I-K-A-L-A-T-O-S, you can find me in a variety of other places, including Twitter and Facebook and all those places. Nice. All right. Well, before we go, Matt, uh, we have a tradition here uh, at the Fascinating Podcast where we share something from uh, our week that's been fascinating us. So is that something you'd be interested in participating in? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Uh, why don't you tell us what has been fascinating you this week? <laughs> yeah, so I'm reading a book called Black Elk by Joe Jackson, which is a biography of the uh, uh, of a Native American holy man who is called Black Elk, who, whose book famously is Black Elk Speaks. Uh, but this is his biography. And Black Elk is fascinating. He's Crazy Horse's cousin. He's at every major uh, battle you can think of from the Plains Indians. So he sees Wounded Knee. He's there um, at Little Bighorn, uh, all these places. He's in Wild Bill's Wild West show. 
Uh, so he touches all these kind of historic moments, uh, but it's a beautiful story and a tragic story. I think going to what you were saying, Kathy, like you cannot read this book and look at Native Americans in the United States the same ever again. Uh, it, it is a tragedy and a tragedy that is constantly compounded, sometimes with good intention, by people uh, trying to s- sometimes steal land, sometimes trying to save the Native people or help them assimilate, uh, and just constantly, constantly, uh, intentionally or not committing genocide, essentially. Uh, beautiful, beautifully written book, insightful, spiritual gorgeously written. Uh, I'm not anywhere near done with it. I think I'm halfway through and it's easily one of my favorite books I've read in the last five years. Kathy, what's Uh, fascinating you this week? Okay. Well, I'm going to be, um, Debbie Downer here. I am just fascinated, uh, by the never ending conversation around the, uh, Kavanaugh hearings and, um, and this toxic boys will be boys mentality that I am finding uh, particularly gut-wrenching amongst women. And um, I think I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, I'm, I'm not only a mother, I am raising a daughter and two sons. And I am tired of people asking, what do we do? What do we tell our young girls to protect themselves? Mm -hmm. And all I can think of was, shouldn't we just be telling our boys not to be rapey? (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I mean, why, why this emphasis on like, oh, girls, protect yourselves. I'm pretty sure we learned pretty early (laughs) that the world is not, um, made for us. So I'm just having, uh, I'm just kind of sitting in that, trying not to blow up too many things on the internet around that. And then just having some good conversations with the 17 year old son at home around that and what he hears at school and, you know, like, Hey Elias, you know, right. About consent and, and to have those conversations with my own son has been hopeful. Even, uh, even this last, uh, I think like the day uh, they were recording the day before the day we're recording. Uh, so by the time you're hearing this, it's been last week, but, uh, there was a thing going around on Twitter where some guy said, no guy I know has never not been in a bar fight. Yeah. <laughs> I and, tweeted to him. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I've never been in a bar fight. I, I don't know. know. I was like, I, I've never I'm seen Matt. a bar fight. Nice to meet you. Yeah. yeah. I've been in a couple. Yeah. I know. But that's not the norm. You're, sens- <laughs> you're sensitive when people say stuff about instant potatoes. <laughs> I throw it down. I throw right down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I think you're right, Kathy. Like that as a boy, the boys will be boys thing is just so disgusting. Um, the, a, the idea that we find that behavior acceptable from a male of any age and B the, the dismissive idea that this is just how, how men are naturally somehow. Right. Uh, when actually I know a lot of men that they're not like that at all. Who haven't been in bar fights or sexually assaulted someone. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who understood what consent was before it was cool. Right. You know? Um, 
Like it, it's 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 and uh, yeah, it's, I I agree. Like it's staggering to me how many people are using that as some kind of an a, a, an excuse, you know, for for the hearing. Certainly something to continue watching with uh, the unavoidable nature of it, but at least voices are being raised, whether some people try to quiet them or not. Uh, sort of along those lines, for me this week, I'm going to bring up a podcast that I actually listened to a few months ago. It's called Slow Burn from Slate. Slate. They did season one on Richard Nixon and Watergate, and season two is out now with Bill Clinton and the whole impeachment scandal. Um, so I'm about to go into season two, but uh, season one was really good. And they essentially covered the Watergate scandal to to give you a sense of the way it felt at the time. And um, it's really interesting because it spends very little time really, you know, doing what you expect it to do, which is probably talk about Richard Nixon the whole time. Um, so you meet a lot of characters you don't know about. You hear really how it sounds when maybe like an administration is crumbling to pieces and like when you're living through that in real time so slow burn the podcast season two is now out i'm about to jump in it's wonderful i love i i uh have you listened to season two kathy i have started yes i started and then had caught up i think i was like three episodes in so i like uh i binge listened Mm-hmm. on a drive back, I think from Iowa, dropping my son off at school and then listened to like the first three episodes of season two and then was like, wait, nothing's loading. There's nothing. Oh, shoot. I'm caught up. <laughs> it's always so sad when you catch no. up. It is. It is. And having not, having been just old enough to be watching the news around the Clinton impeachment is fascinating to hear it kind of spoken back and uh-huh. told again. So yes, everyone should listen. Nice. Awesome. I still have not started Slow Burn yet. I'm like the last one of the party on that, but I'll get there. Uh, so I'm going to share one that's way lighter than everyone else's. I came very ill-prepared today. <laughs> uh, uh, it is uh, uh, it's Kate Atkinson's new novel, Transcription. Uh, and Kate Atkinson is one of my favorite writers. I discovered her after Stephen King tweeted about her book, uh, her last Jackson Brody mystery that she published. And he he just said, as someone who tries to plot mysteries, let me tell you, it's harder than it looks. And Kate Atkinson does it better than anyone I've read, or something. It was you know something like that. And I was like, well, hey, Ooh. that sort of ringing endorsement from another one of my all time favorite authors is is. Uh, nothing to sneeze at. So I started reading her mystery novels and loved them. And then a few years ago, I think back in 2012, uh, she wrote a book called Life by Life, which is a very difficult book to explain. But it was uh, it was essentially a woman who was born in Britain in like 1910 ish. So she was a child during World War One and, and a working adult during World War Two. But the entire book is just a series of alternate versions of her life. So like one time she dies in being delivered. Another time she, uh, you know, dies in a bombing in London. Another time she like misses a train and walks next to a guy and end up getting married. And it's like, it's just, and there's no, like, it's not, it's not sci-fi. There's, it's not like aliens at the end running an experiment or something. There's not like a, this wonderful life sort of angel. It, it, that's just the book. And it's just all of these different ways her life might've played out It's a beautiful book. Uh, and so her new book transcription, is a woman who is living in Britain 
kind of I, I guess the 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 Brits call it like the pre-war war of World War II where uh Germany hadn't quite um like taken over Poland and that kind of stuff yet and everyone was just really nervous and they were talking about appeasement and that kind of stuff and so it's kind of like Hitler's rise to power from her perspective and she's gets recruited by MI5 to to do spy work where she's spying on British Nazis or Nazi sympathizers uh, and I don't know, like I, I'm, I'm only about a third of the way through it right now, but Atkinson is just a brilliant writer. It's a beautiful book. Uh, the main character, uh, is really just like fiery and feisty and fun. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's great. I'm loving it. It's, it's, it's just one of those books that I can't wait to get back to reading because the language is so good and it's, it's, it's a really engaging book. So that's transcription by Kate Atkinson. Excellent. Good recap. Good show. Great book, Matt. And um, we heard where we can find Matt online. Kathy, what are you up to this week? What can people be looking for from you? Oh, this week. I'm not doing a whole lot this coming week. Just hit you, find you on Twitter? Just tweeting. <laughs> they can find me on Twitter trying to burn things up. Okay. JR, what do you got going on? You got a- uh, Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Facebook at JR Foresteros, and uh, I'll be sending out my weekly newsletter on Friday. Actually, the week this episode drops, I'm going to be in Nampa, Idaho, speaking at Northwest Nazarene University's Fall Revival. And then uh, next weekend, I'm going to be in uh, somewhere in Southern California, speaking at a men's retreat with Matt Michalatis. Woohoo! We should write our talks. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, everyone. We totally have them written already. <laughs> awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm same old, same old. Um, guarantee I'm going to start actually posting content online again soon. Sure. It's October, everybody. So... That is episode 203 of The Story, man. Check out the Crescent Stone oh, no. <laughs> of the fascinating podcast. <laughs> See, I don't, I, don't even do, I don't even do formally, the artist formerly known as. Kathy, you might as well just do the uh, outro. Take, take us home, Kathy. Oh, my gosh. What is happening here? I like how Clay's like, Kathy, I'm going to ask you on the fly to do all of these uh, elements of the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Trial by fire. Welcome. Uh, Clay, I hope you post some recipes yes. with instant mashed potato flakes. See, this is That's what, I- what you can do. And thanks for listening to the fascinating podcast. This is why you can't go wrong by turning the mic over to Kathy in any situation. I know. I know. She's a professional. Uh, I just got to keep oh. feeding her ammunition. <laughs>